Welcome to Getting Credit, a podcast focusing on financial markets, corporate credit, and timely insights from Pacific Funds. Here's your host, Dominic Nolan, CEO of Pacific Asset Management, the sub-advisor for the Pacific Funds Fixed Income Strategies. Hello, and welcome to number 53. In this episode, I will touch on the recent rebound in asset prices, current Fed expectations, impacts of the work-from-home trend, touch on the debt ceiling, and opportunities in fixed income. Let's begin. Let's start with market action in January. We saw a pretty broad-based rally in risk as the S&P was up over 6%, and over the past three months up about the same. The Russell 1000 growth index up over 8%. Over the past three months, it's up about 5 The Russell 2000 was up 9.5% in January. And of note, over the past one year, the Russell 2000 value index is down 50 basis points, one half of 1%. So you think in a brutal period, that index is about flat. Thus far, the standout has been international equities. This area has underperformed for quite a while going into this year, but the developed market or the MSCI EFI index was up 8% in January, and over the past three months, it's up 20%, and that's relative to the S&P being up about 5 Over in fixed income, the aggregate bond index was up 3% during January. That's very strong. And over the past six months, it's actually in line with the S&P, up about 6 Over the past year, it's still down 8%. When you think about a balanced portfolio, by a balanced portfolio, thinking about 60% equities and 40% in fixed income. At the end of 2022, down about 16% would have been probably one of the worst years in history for a balanced portfolio. Just one month later, a trailing one-year return of a balanced portfolio would be down about 8 So that's a substantial move that we've seen in January with stocks and bonds rallying. As it relates to leverage finance, the U.S. corporate high yield index was up about 4% in January. For the past year, that index is down 5 Bank loans continue to be a steady asset class with the Credit Suisse leverage loan index up 2.5% in January. Over the past year, bank loans have been the only major fixed income asset class to be positive, up about 1%. Let's turn to the Fed. Just the past week, the Fed increased the overnight rate to four and a half to four and three quarters, which was an increase of 25 basis points. They reiterated their position on keeping rates elevated until inflation gets back to 2%, which I think is hawkish. On a dovish note, they did mention that inflation has likely, quote, peaked. I think the Fed has done a majority of what they needed to do on tightening conditions. It's now, in my opinion, really a matter of leaving the conditions tight. As I speak, market expectations are for another 25 basis point hike in March and another 25 basis point hike in May, and then a 25 basis point cut in December. Now, that's a little more hawkish than last month when expectations were for one more 25 basis point hike in March, a pause, and then two cuts later this year. The real mover of that adjustment was the jobs report, which I'll touch on. But I think the general feel of the market relative to the Fed is that the market currently believes the Fed will not be as hawkish as the Fed rhetoric. Are two more hikes reasonable? While I don't think more hikes are necessary, two more hikes feels reasonable at this time. 
This hopefully gets the job done in bringing down inflation at an acceptable pace. There is an increase in a camp that believes the Fed could go to six. I, at this point, I would be very surprised if that happened. But at the same time, I was surprised we're at five. So a bit of a guess on my end. Let's get into the jobs picture. Earlier this month, the non-farm payrolls report came in, and it was a gangbuster report. 517,000 jobs added in January. Estimates going in were 187,000, so two and a half times the expectation, and it essentially dropped unemployment from 3.6 to 3.4. We are now at unemployment levels that are below pre-COVID levels. That signals a pretty robust job market, and it's been broad-based. On the other side of this, though, you are seeing companies that are announcing layoffs. I'll just rattle off a few, in particular in the tech sector, that were announced in January and part of February. Zoom, 15% layoffs. Dell, 5%. PayPal, 7%. Google, 6%. Microsoft, 4 to 5%. Amazon, 16,000 jobs, which is about 3% of their corporate allocation. And that's on top of Meta, 13%. Salesforce, 10%. You know, a lot of these companies staffed up during COVID, and now they're readjusting. I do believe these numbers are really signaling efficiency to the market. Currently, there's still a need for service-level jobs. Those numbers are really what's driving unemployment lower. Nonetheless, though, the job market and job picture look pretty good at this time in spite of the tech layoffs. But again, we'll see how this plays out. I want to touch on a topic related to jobs, and in particular the pandemic, and that's the work-from-home shift. When we look through things, there are now three times the number of remote jobs compared to three years ago or pre-pandemic. That equates to about 15% of the U.S. workforce. And according to a 2022 McKinsey & Company survey, employees prefer hybrid work and employers now have more options to pay less. Essentially, the employee saves time on travel to and from the office. They save general time, energy, clothing, etc same time, employers can save on rent, insurance, utilities. When you dig deeper to employee sentiment, the McKinsey survey noted that 58% of workers were offered partial remote jobs during COVID. 87% of them accepted. Of the 87%, 32% went remote all five days. When combing through underlying data even more, the average is now typically three days remote And that tends to be across industries, education levels, and income levels. The only notable difference was older or more experienced workers tend to be more remote than younger. So if you're new to the industry or company, you'd be expected to be in the office a little more and vice versa. I believe this adjustment is secular, and that shouldn't be a surprise to folks. I think the longer-term effects of remote work will be interesting. feels like it would put pressure on expensive or high-density cities. I mean, those cities essentially lose some pricing power because there's less need to go into the office. And when you think about metropolises such as New York, San Francisco, downtown Chicago, much of that premium is about having so many people in the vicinity. It creates an energy, more restaurants, more nightlife, etc. But with more people working from home, you start to get in a negative feedback loop of less people, less energy, less desire to come in, etc. I also think it makes the suburbs much more attractive. I think cheaper cities and cheaper states are more attractive for both employees and employers. Ultimately, 
it should come to a place of more efficiency for companies, which is great for our economy. At the same time, long-term effects of being a virtual company will have ramifications and trying to navigate one's career that's based in a virtual setting will have different challenges. And this is in addition to the normal career challenges folks go through. I want to touch briefly on something that's been in the press, and that is about the debt ceiling. Am I worried about it at this time? Not yet. And looking through, there's, there's a ton of game theory going on with both congressional Republicans and Democrats. Ultimately, I think there's going to be some pain, but I'd be surprised if there was a technical default. The real thing to watch, in my opinion, is the approach to spending. And in particular, to what extent do they cut the budget? That's what's going to affect capital markets and the economy. I mean, to me, the debt ceiling is the spark to ignite budget discussions. And I don't see a camp where they're going to want to increase the budget deficit. So we'll see how this plays out. I would expect it to heat up quite extensively in June or the June timeframe. Now on to credit. We have seen a very nice start to the year. Where the current levels sit, the aggregate index is up 3% and has a yield of about 4.5, has an average price of just under 91. High yields up more than 3%, yield of more than 8%, price is around 90. Bank loans are up 2.5% for the year, have a yield of over 9, and price is around 93.5. Investment grade credit still yields over 5%, price is around 92. So while we've seen a nice tick off the bottom, the yields are still attractive, in my opinion, and bonds and loans are trading in the high 80s to low 90s. When I look at the landscape, you know, growth rates are holding, inflation's rolling over, there's potential, I think, for more government budget cuts, and things are slowing down. All that tells me that rates probably have room to move lower, and thus I remain constructive on fixed income. A question that we've been getting a lot is, should we be adding duration? into a portfolio. From my experience in the industry, I think a lot of investors believe they can time the rate market. I mean, the short end of the curve is really dictated by the Fed, but the belly and the long end are extraordinarily difficult to get right. But I think a lot of investors mistakenly think they can get it right. Is there some value in going out on the curve at this point? I would say yes, but understand you're going to take on volatility as an investor. So does it make sense to move a little bit out? Sure. I think that's reasonable. But what I've been questioned on lately is moving entirely out of short end and just jumping into longer duration assets. Personally, I feel like it's because they've heard from big money managers that's what they should do. But I'll walk you through the math on a trade like this. It's like floating rate loans are yielding 9%. The aggregate index is yielding 4.5%. Over the next year, if rates stayed level and you just clipped a coupon, you're trailing by... I'd say at least four and a half points from a coupon standpoint. So to make up for that four and a half points, you've got to hope that rates go lower. Right? Well, how much lower? Just back of the envelope math, to get four and a half points of return on an asset class with a duration of six, you need rates to drop about 75 basis points to break even. And we haven't even accounted for volatility yet. Now, if you have full conviction, sure, you probably jump in more than others. But if you're not entirely sure, this is all on the margin, folks. So could be a little overweight to duration, but cutting off one end of the curve to jump entirely another, it just seems a bit overzealous to me. 
The beauty of our markets and liquid markets is you don't have to move everything at once. You can do this over time in smaller increments. That would be my two cents. As always, I'll end on a personal reflection. So as many of you know, Aristotle Capital Management recently agreed to purchase us from Pacific Life, and we're currently going through this transition. You know, we've had many meetings, and in particular, prior to one meeting with Pacific Life, I let the Aristotle executives know that you know, Pacific Life certainly appreciates a supportive framework through this. And they just simply turned, looked at me, and said, no problem. Compliments are free. And that has stuck with me through this. So folks, compliments are free and can be immensely valuable. I'll leave you with that. Thank you again for your time, and stay tuned. The views in this commentary are as of the date recorded and are presented for informational purposes only. These views should not be construed as investment advice, an endorsement of any security mutual fund, sector, or index, or to predict performance of any investment. The opinions expressed herein are subject to change without notice, as market and other conditions warrant. Any performance data quoted represents past performance, which does not guarantee future results. Any forward-looking statements are not guaranteed. All material is compiled from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. All third-party trademarks referenced belong to respective owners. Pacific Funds and Pacific Asset Management LLC are registered service marks of Pacific Life Insurance Company. Pacific Life Insurance Company is the administrator for Pacific Funds. It is not a fiduciary and therefore does not give advice or make recommendations regarding insurance or investment profit.